everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom Collaborations for DC Spotlight for the week of October 31st, 2023. Uh, although our date up there says October 24th, 2023. Yeah. Oh. It's, there we go. Halloween. Right. Happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, <laughs> again, apologies that I had to leave a little early last time. Um, Rocky guest at my book of the week would have been Action Comics. However, while I definitely gave that consideration, uh, I think. Alan Scott Green Lantern would have been my book of the week last week. It was, <laughs> okay. it was that good. It was really amazing and, and a lot of potential. So this week, uh, a bit of a, a little bit of a smaller week. You know, it is a fifth Tuesday. Um, so six books to talk about. Although a couple of them are pretty big. Um, we'll kick it off with uh, with the Supergirl special, which is written by Mariko Tamaki, art by Skylar Patridge, colors by Marisa Louise, letters by Becca Carey. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a bigger issue. It's like 38 pages. Um, and I thought the art was pretty strong from Patridge, but I, I kind of felt like the coloring didn't do the line work. It's, uh, it didn't reflect the line work in the best way that it, it could have. It's kind of a, almost a pastel palette at times. Uh, and I get that it's a bit of a, I don't want to say a downer story, but it's definitely not a typical upbeat, you know, Superman story, but, um, it does definitely seem like DC editorial is really embracing that term supers, which is used several times here as well as some, uh, some other superhero uh, or Superman related titles this week. Um, so I thought the art ultimately was just okay in terms of the story. Wow. I mean, I, it's, it's like DC acknowledging, yes, we know that power girl and Supergirl are sort of the same, and you can get them confused and mixed up and they're sort of interchangeable and redundant. Uh, we know that. And guess what? Now the characters know it too. And that's sort of it. That's sort of the whole story. Like I thought there would be maybe some kind of, I don't know, clue to something upcoming, some kind of clue. Uh, we have a Power Girl title right now. And it definitely seems like Lay Williams is trying to differentiate Paige, that we're now calling her. She's not even Karen Starr anymore. She's Paige. I can't remember her last name. Um, but trying to differentiate, and in doing that, I, you know, I mentioned the first couple issues of Power Girl that we reviewed. She feels all of a sudden so naive and inexperienced, which is not at all the case of who Supergirl or Power Girl should actually be. Um, but leaving that aside, where has Supergirl been? You know, other than the Supergirl well, Woman of Tomorrow miniseries from Tom King, which is just fantastic. Uh, but that's not really a kind of a Supergirl that's in continuity, that's that's interacting with the rest of the Superman family. So, you know, where is Kara Zor-El now? Like, what is she doing? Who is she? Maybe we'll get some clues in this special to see where she's headed. How are they, you know, differentiating her from Power Girl? If you're taking Power Girl in one direction – it would seem to me that you would take Supergirl in a different direction to kind of diverge them rather than keeping Supergirl on the same path and then just diverging Power Girl. Like they'll be even more different, more unique if you diverge both of them off of kind of the shared path that they had. We don't get any of that here. We don't get any resolution. We, we just get these feelings that they're sort of the same and they're feeling, we feel that, they feel that. And then at the end, when you know, they, one of them, I, I think it's Supergirl, right? She mentions that somebody got her mixed up with Power Girl or what have you. Um, and then they sort of laugh about it. And then everything is just okay. That somebody says, uh, you're my favorite Supergirl. Or that, you, you know, they tell me the same thing. Um, and, and that was it. Like, I, I was left, like, it says the end, <laughs> you know, at the uh, last page. And I, I sort of felt like, what what's the point of reading that? What new information did that give me? Did it give me any new information? Kind of feel like it didn't. So I don't know. This was a miss for me. I thought the art was strong. I think the colors could have been a little brighter, would have suited the line work better. Uh, but story-wise, I, I don't know what the point of this was. I don't know. Maybe I missed something, Rocky. T tell me what I missed. Oh, you didn't miss anything, uh, and you're more kind to it than I am. I didn't like the art. I thought this is one of the worst Skylar, Skylar Patridge. I remember her doing the backup to the stories of Wonder Woman leading up to Trial of the Amazons. I thought that art was really good. This, it feels like the line work is just incomplete. 
Uh, some of the pages here are just, I think, embarrassing. I mean, uh, I mean, there's no backgrounds to some of these. The lack of backgrounds uh, on some of the pages is just glaring uh, of particular disappointment to me. And this is a combination of both script and artist is, you know, this is uh, Schuyler's, uh Patridge's opportunity to, to give us what, what Krypton will look like. And Krypton doesn't, uh, she, she didn't really, I didn't find the, the rendition or the, or the artistic rendition of Krypton to be particular. It didn't feel like Krypton. It didn't feel alien. It didn't feel different. Um, uh, a criticism of Marika Tamaki's uh, storyline here is that uh, one of the thematic uh, themes, one of the thematic themes, <laughs> stupid way of putting it, one of the, I think, um, themes is this idea of loss. Uh, Kara, when she was on Krypton, always came in second place. And apparently they have, apparently, did you know that people who race, she, she was into racing on Krypton. She liked to sprint and sprinters wore ex the exact type of clothes that human beings wear. I mean, it looked exactly like you would think that Kara went to school in high school on Earth, but apparently on Krypton, it looks identical on Krypton. What a missed opportunity. It, it didn't look at all like this was really a different uh, different world, a different uh, scene. And I just thought it was it just, it was just, uh, First of all, I thought, what what a complete lack of creativity on the part of Marika Tamaki to say that she was a sprinter in school. She wasn't. That that wasn't what Kara was. She was she was into science. She was. I mean, this has actually been established even as far back as Robert Venditti's Hawkman. I mean, this is just something that's coming out of nowhere, and it just it's. I mean, it's not a big deal because the the whole idea is to show that Kara, for whatever reason, felt that she was always coming in second place on, on Krypton. <laughs> and then when she gets to Earth, she feels like it's second place and that she's lost again because she's her mission. Uh, her, her mission has failed because she, she's supposed to raise a young Kalal, but Kalal is older than her when she gets to Earth. So she she feels like she's come in second place then again. And and then that this really pisses her off. This is the angst that just drives Kara crazy. And then for some reason, she she, she seems to take it out on Power Girl. Uh, and because she, I guess she feels like she's maybe being sec, she's in second place to Power Girl. So when her and Power Girl are, are saving some lives, Kara overcompensates by getting in front of Power Girl and, you know, because she doesn't want to be seen as second fiddle again. And so I could get what Marika Tamaki was trying to do, but it just felt really forced to me with a very cliche, derivative, uh, boring, uninspired back backstory on Krypton to get there. And to be honest with you, this doesn't actually feel like the Supergirl I know. And you mentioned it, Tom King. Now I know uh, I love his Tom King Supergirl run. And I think that the the actual origin of Supergirl, what she went through and the, mat the, the maturity, the mature way that she came out of that trauma uh, really elevates the character. And I think that at, at the very least, the spirit of Tom King's uh, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow should permeate here. But instead, this is dumbed down to make Kara look like really not as uh, mature as I think she actually is, not as uh, uh, developed as she actually is or ought to be. And I just thought it was very, very disappointing. And um, yeah, overall, I'm, I'm, this was a complete waste of an issue. It really was. We didn't need this we didn't need this. It, this did no favors for Supergirl at all, uh, in my view. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed with it, uh, both artistically and in terms of the story itself. And, uh, you know, Marika Tamaki did a, uh, did a, did a comic book called Being, Being Super uh, with, uh, uh, with, a, with, a, with a better artist, uh, uh, Jones. Uh, who was that? She, Joelle Jones. Joelle Jones, thank you. And uh, that was, uh, you know, that was well. That was kind of boring. It was at least well done and 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 critically appraised. This was really a step down uh, narratively uh, for me. I, I was just very very disappointed on 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 all fronts here. But uh, uh, yeah, hopefully, I mean, Supergirl. I'm glad we got a Power Girl series because Power Girl is infinitely more interesting. If this is how how Supergirl is going to be seen moving forward, I mean, I think Power Girl and Supergirl have switched places because Power Girl is begin becoming more interesting under Leigh Williams, in my view. Then this would hint. This would suggest Supergirl is, but uh, maybe I'm being too harsh. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it really is problematic. They they are in so many ways the exact same character. Um, but yeah, you can't get rid of one now. Um, it's so it's it's tough. I, it's tough. It really is. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Spirit World issue number six. Alyssa Wong is the writer. 
Sebastian Chang handles the colors, Henning on line work, Janice Chang on letters. Final uh, issue of the run, did it wrap up in a satisfying way for you, Rocky? Uh, it actually did. It actually did. I was, um, uh, it, it, I was, um, I was surprised at how a uh, writer, um, I forgot who the writer is, Alyssa. I am right. I, I would have guessed Alyssa Wong. Yeah. Uh, Alyssa Wong, uh, they did a good job here. I get my pronouns right. And I think that's the first time I got my pronouns right with, without you having to correct me. So that's a victory right there. Yeah, exactly. uh, so they did a good job on this. Uh, the uh, idea here that uh, we have Xanthi, uh, Cassandra Kane, Bad Girl, and, and Constantine are battling the Gilded General, who was sent by the Jade Court to basically uh, kill them, and also to kill this Wan Yu Jing, who is this sort of apparently this this demon character with blue skin and red eyes that wants who that wants to essentially. Uh, uh, absorb Xanthi, Cassandra, and Constantine. Break and open the jade. Open the the, the the doors to the Jade Court and attain the ability to reincarnate. And she wants to reincarnate because what uh, it's revealed that this this Wu character, this this villain, uh, was in fact deprived of. Uh, she was deprived of, of reincarnation because uh, uh, it's ultimately revealed that. One of the reasons why Wu hate, re resents the Jade Court is that the that the, the members of the Jade Court, uh, who Xanthi herself has got some issues with, they control you know who reincarnates and who doesn't. But once you die, you can you can uh, before you can attain and go to another level, you got to go through a process of possible reincarnation. And and the Jade Court apparently is they decide that, and this Wu became forgotten, and there was a. Uh, what I really liked is the is as, as the story progresses, Xanthi herself comes. She really displays a high amount of compassion for the villain. She actually reminded me quite a bit of Wonder Woman, the, the type of compassion that Wonder Woman will, would display, because she says she essentially says to Wu that you know, what's your name? Tell me your name. I will remember you because part of the tragedy of Wu is that she's forgotten. And part of the re reason why she desires reincarnation is that she can come back to life and not be forgotten. And there's a tragedy to being forgotten. And um, it's only when uh, when Xanthi offers Wu, offers her remembrance and peace, that that, that the corruption, that, that Constantine noticed that the corruption disappears. And I thought it was a nice sort of uh, metaphor for the idea that you know, if you don't repeat the, the the mistakes of history, if you we're doomed to, if you, if you, you if your history repeats itself, and we're and we got to be uh, we got to be careful not to repeat our past mistakes. And we, the only way we can do that is by remembering those who came before us, remembering the lessons of the past, and remembering the good and the bad, like people like Wu, remembering the lives that came before us. And by remembering, we can avoid their mistakes and hopefully exemplify the things that they did right. And so I thought it was a good message at the end, and I, I, I thought it really worked. Uh, we learned something about Xanthi's origin. She is, in fact, sort of a, a hybrid, reincarnated half-soul of the sorcerer Popo, <laughs> which is interesting. And and that that explains why she sort of half of her lives in the living, half of her lives amongst the, the dead. And that also explains potentially her her gender or her non-binary status, which I think is interesting. That's not explicitly said. I'm implying that in the narrative. And so I thought everything worked fairly well. I thought uh, I, I thought it was a lot of this stuff, even regarding the sexuality of uh of uh, the non-binary status of Xanthi, I thought was sort of implicit in the narrative, and I thought that worked well. And Alyssa Wong, they did a good job, and uh, kudos to the artist as well, uh, who uh, that I do did forget, uh, Haining on on the art. Uh, I thought did a really good job. I, I really felt it was a kind of a creepy sort of other world sort of feel, which is what it's supposed to be supposed to be. So I, I, I thought this ended on a high note. What about yourself? Yeah, I thought it was a satisfying conclusion. Um, you know, if I were to nitpick anything, you know, going back and looking at the series as a whole, we've mentioned a few times, it is a little choppy at times. It just feels like this really could have used eight or 10 issues instead of six. And it would have given Alyssa Wong a little, more of a chance to lay th things out, maybe a little more clear. And, and that just might be me. I, I don't know how much of this is uh, what 
Alyssa Wong is creating out of whole cloth for this story and how much they're drawing from actual Asian mythology and, and what have you, because uh, I'm just not that familiar with it. So, you know, perhaps if I had, if she is pulling from, you know, Asian myths and what have you, theories of afterlife and their afterlife beliefs and what have you, then maybe I wouldn't have felt like I needed it spoon fed to me a little bit more. Um, but I think I just would have got more out of it if the story had had a little more reason, uh, a little more room to breathe. But like I said, I'm nitpicking because ultimately this was a lot of fun. It was great seeing the interaction between Xanthi and Cassandra Kane, as well as Constantine. He was a great choice to be added kind of bridges that gap of kind of superhero, uh, which you would consider Cassandra Kane and uh, kind of the magic corner of, of DCU, where certainly that's where, you know, Xanthi lives, talking about afterlife and what have you. You mentioned the origin of Xanthi, this idea that she's stuck, half reincarnated, half not. So she's both dead and alive. That's fascinating. What a great idea for a character. You're right about the art. It's gorgeous. The art suits this type of story really well also like we're talking about hybrid right we're talking about superhero with cassandra kane we're talking about magic with john constantine we're talking about xanthi as a hybrid character both dead and alive and then we're talking about the art the line work by hanning which is this great hybrid between uh, like like the dc house style which is very western and these heavy anime influences or manga influences that hanning brings as well um a lot of characters a lot of action a lot of gorgeous color work as well. Um, you know, it's magic. So it's got to be bright. It's got to, you know, kind of jump off the page. It's got to look like it's glowing at times. So, um, you know, a fantastic job on, on the color work as well, whether it's the yellow lightning, whether it's this green magic, you know, whatever it might be. Um, even going to the, the first pages um, where Wu Yang is sort of telling her origin. Sebastian Chen colors it in almost these sepia tones, gives it that sort of classic flashback feel. So, yeah, this was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, as soon as I finished reading it, my thought was, I need to go back and reread the whole thing. Because um, a couple of things, like some of the issues I read multiple times just going through because I felt a little lost or there were breaks or whatever. But now that the whole thing's done, right, and I've got a little more context, let me go back and read the whole thing and see if I if I get more out of it. I have a feeling I'll still wish for a few more pages in each issue just to kind of flesh it out. But again, that's, that's probably on me. I'm getting old, not figuring things out as well as I used to. I want to do a little less work. Uh, but yeah, I thought overall this was great. And I'm, I'm really glad Xanth exists as a character. I think she's uh, really, or they, I should say, uh, are a really fascinating character, both in terms of their origin, you know, what we learned here. And also in terms of um, this idea of her being able to take paper and create weapons and all that, that's, that's a really cool uh, ability to have. So, yeah. uh, all right, moving on detective comics, number 1076 um, Batman outlaw from writer Ron V Jason, Sean Alexander's the artist, Dave Stewart on colors, Ariana Mare on letters, <laughs> I didn't get a chance to talk about the last issue, which I, I found to be really interesting. I did watch what you had to say, Rocky. I, I agreed with you about losing that detective. And then the other, we, we lose both detectives, really. One of them didn't deserve it. The other one, who's betrayed his partner, been brainwashed by the, the organs, is going to go off and kill himself eventually. And I guess, you know, uh, he's going to get his just desserts in a way. But the, the detective that, you know, Batman had previously rescued you know he did not deserve that and i would have liked to have seen him hang around uh, a little bit more um but it's batman there's a high body count and uh in this particular issue it's a little bit of uh, a bridge issue a little bit of of setup if you will um you know we saw last issue that the uh, that artisan was saying you know, maybe I don't want to, you know, I, I promised Bruce Wayne, I see myself into him, I promise to honor his legacy, finds out Bruce Wayne's Batman, should I kill him, should I not? It seemed like at the end of the last issue that he was leaning toward not killing him, now this issue starts, and Batman's there, he's captured, they're talking about hanging him, and I'm like, well, is it, did they just get some random homeless person and throw him in Batman's costume? No, it, it really is Bruce Wayne, you can see his eyes glowing, he's uh, 
still infected by the Azmir to the point that Ar- uh, Arzen doesn't really know how Batman's even able to talk. Like, how are you still able to function? We know it's because of the influence of Barbados, which is another aspect of the story that, that Rom V is, is adding in. And uh, when we get to the backup, we'll t- talk a little more about that. But what's interesting here is like so often in the history of Batman and detective comics, right? I, I don't know the percentage. I, I couldn't even say it's most of the time or half the time or less than half the time. But I just know there have been times um, where they're on a dual narrative, right? Like things that happen in one title affect what happens in the other title and, and what have you. Um, it hasn't – Detective hasn't felt like that in a long time, right? Detective Comics feels like it's completely out of the regular continuity. We haven't seen anything, you know, Gotham War or – night terrors or any of that, any of that stuff, right? None of it has affected the story that Ron V is telling. It feels like he's just doing his own thing. That changes a little bit in this issue. This is the first time where I feel like a little bit of alignment, if you will, with what's happening with the Gotham war. We'll talk about the conclusion of that and how it feels like it's leading Bruce in a certain direction. Uh, and just the feeling of, of trauma, everything Batman's been through recently and this feeling of, of isolation, this feeling of wanting to take him off the game board. Um, and yeah, it's just in a really strange, Batman's in a really strange place right now um, in terms of that. I feel that here in Detective. You feel that Bruce Wayne's tired. You feel that he needs a break. You feel he needs to kind of get away from it all. Um, and so I found that to be interesting. It's the first time that this has felt like sort of a part of the mainstream DC continuity, if you will. Uh, we also get a chance to see Azrael show up. We get a chance to see Catwoman starting to, to put together a team uh, because once she is informed that uh, that Bruce has been captured and he's set to be hanged, um, she's like, well, you know, I'm not going to let that happen. And I'm Catwoman, so how do I solve the problem when my wannabe boyfriend is uh, is being held hostage? Well, I'm going to... I'm going to go in and steal him just like I would steal, you know, anything valuable. I'm going to put together a heist. I'm going to put together a crew and I'm going to, you know, see how that'll all go down. It's not the traditional way a crew is put together. Uh, even in comics, you know, it's not like, okay, this double page spread, she goes and recruits this person, this double page spread, she goes and recruits this person. She's kind of doing her own way. She goes and sets Jim Gordon to a task. She goes and asks poison Ivy not to be part of the team, but to create something for her. Um, she goes and looks like she's going to try to recruit Azrael. So it seems like an eclectic group. You know, we saw this done not too long ago in Birds of, uh, Birds of Prey by Kelly Thompson, done very, very well. This is kind of Rom V's uh, version of it. And I guess we'll see how it all plays out. So, yeah, overall, I'm, I've enjoyed the last couple of issues of Detective um, more so than the majority of the, the story. It's It finally feels like it's getting somewhere. It feels like it's taken a long time. It's felt like it dragged at points, but yeah, it's uh, it's finally feels like it's gaining some momentum. So, uh, what were your thoughts on it? Well, I I was really happy. I couldn't believe I surprised myself how happy I was to see Azrael, Father Valley, Invention show up because you and I actually I think I don't know about you, but I enjoyed myself more than I would have thought when we were when we were reviewing Azrael's uh, miniseries there with uh, that was uh, scripted by. Uh, uh, by Dan Waters, and uh, I, I just love seeing him show up here because he, he basic, uh, as as Rael, because we he's got that he's got he's got the system that sort of like controls him, which we know is not Roman Catholic based anymore, but is ra- rather an alien box. It's like the mother box, but it's like it's a tech box, and it's 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 the true origin of the Azraels, uh, and and the fact that in the backup it's confirmed that this that the system is speaking to Azrael telling him that Gotham has has somebody has stolen the Batman Gotham has lost something something somebody stole something from Gotham and what did they steal they stole Batman well guess what Azrael Batman is going to return and in the backup when Azrael's staring at the old his old costume there of Azrael Batman that is so awesome and I always thought the Azrael Batman was kind of corny back in the day but for some reason I think it's cool to see you know teasing the sword of the Batman you know Azrael donning you know 
Gotham needs Batman. This is reinforcing the fact that, you know, even even something with this high tech box that controls the system of Azrael is is Azrael lets the box speak to him and say, hey, guess what? Gotham is missing something and you need to fill in the it's missing its vengeance. It's missing its judgment. It's fire. It's wrath. It's missing. It's Batman. Well, guess what? Guess who fits that bill? Azrael Batman. And I just love that aspect of it. And the fact that we got Batman possessed, of course, by, you know, occupying his brain isn't the Batman of Zurana, but Barbados preventing the Azmir from fully controlling Batman and fully taking control of his mind. We've got, um, we got, uh, uh, Arzen, Master Arzen, who considers who considered Bruce Wayne his friend, and I think it's it's Arzen who decides to tell Catwoman that Batman is being held captive, uh, because even though because even though he wants Batman to die, he he his conscience got is gotten the better of him, and I think it's Arzen who's dressed up like a ninja who who warns Catwoman. Approaches Selena and, and says, "You can rescue your friend." He goes, "I don't care what happens to the Batman. I want I want the Batman to die, but I, you can save, you know, you can save his the his alter ego. You can save Bruce, you know." And he Selena figures out that obviously this guy knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman, and it's likely Arzen because Arzen feels kind of bad because I, I think Batman got got to Arzen by reminding Arzen that, you know, you, you were fed lies by your mother. Uh, you don't know the truth. And you've been lied to your whole life, Arzen. And you've been manipulated. You've been deceived. And the darkness within you is, is, is there because of your, you know, it's, it's, we know that it's there because of his mother. She's a lying B-I-T-C-H. And uh, while darkness poisoned Arzen, uh, Batman feeds on darkness. And, uh, and uh, with Barbados and it's, all these things are finally coming to a head and the fact that we've got we've got you know Batman I mean you got to almost I almost feel sorry for the Argums now they got no idea what they're in for because they thought they only had to worry about Bruce Wayne Batman and Batman can be pretty dark with Barbados and even the Batman is there and I in him but throw in Azrael Azrael's more powerful now than he ever has before throw in as throw in Father Valley throw in vengeance Throwing Catwoman, Commissioner Gordon, you know, with connections with Rene, uh, the new Commissioner Montoya. This is really looking to be building to a, a pretty epic conclusion. Uh, I'm so I'm I'm really enjoying this. I I almost wish this we had more of this build up earlier on uh, because just in this one issue, I think is better than. I, I just think, I don't know, this issue really got me excited and I'm really glad to see all these players and I can't wait to see how this resolves. I hope that it, uh, I hope it doesn't resolve too quickly because I, I love the idea of Azrael as, uh, coming back as Batman and I hope, uh, I hope Ram V does something inspired with it. But no, I, I was quite happy with this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it really wasn't at all, you know, what was to be expected. Um, yeah, it just didn't, didn't expect that at all. Um, but that's what happens in, 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 the, you know, the backup, um, where we, we see Azrael kind of realize that he, he hasn't been doing everything he can to possibly, um, save Gotham as, as it were, you know, in, in his mind, he, he, he put together this machine, try to extract from the system to, to put it on, which kind of, it's interesting. There's a lot of backups here. Some of them rather short, um, you know, there's uh, the question backup with Renee Montoya, the questions in the screen, written by Dan Waters, Christopher Mittens, the artist, Triona Farrell on colors, Steve Wands on letters. That one felt more disconnected than the than the rest, and it felt a little rushed. But then because Azrael shows up in the main story, and then we have him in this backup, uh, along with Vengeance and, and Father Valley, it is interesting um, that, you know, the, the arm, a version of the armor that he wore shows up. Um, and that story is called The Sword of the Batman. It's also written by Dan Waters, who, as Rocky mentioned, has been writing a lot of the Azrael stuff. Liam Sharp does the art and color, so the art and colors are, are fantastic. So, you know, that that is sort of tied in, and there's even some uh, events that happen when he shows up in the main story that are reflected in this this backup story. So, yeah, it, he Azrael feels like a little bit of a different character than he's been for a, a while. Then there's this two-page story that's written by Ram V and also he does the art, which I was very, very impressed with called the summoner's lament with Aditya Bidikar on letters and not a hundred percent sure who this guy is and how this ties in. Um, 
it just says the Duke of Tongues is born. Um, is that who this guy is? Um, you know, he's talking about <coughs> how the Batman's going to die. And uh, yeah, interesting that there's three backups, each getting subsequently shorter than the previous. Um, because it did feel like the main story was a little shorter and a little bit more of setup than anything else, like I mentioned. Um, and then when I realized there were so many backups, it, it made sense why. But I mean, overall, you know, the, like I said, the Rom V art is fantastic. The Liam Sharp art is fantastic. Uh, the Christopher Mitten art, I'll say it suits this, this, this um, question story very, very well. The same thing in the main story with the Jason Sean Alexander art uh, as this kind of bridge because the story, again, feels a little bit shorter, feels a little bit like set up, like I, I mentioned, in terms of not just a shorter story to kind of bridge what was happening last issue with the Franco Villa art and what's going to happen to Bruce Wayne going forward with this potential hanging, but also set up in terms of Catwoman's trying to set up her crew. So, um, and all along, this has felt like a, you know, a dark story, a gothic story, what have you. Um, I guess, for lack of a better term, the... Um, uh, Tim Burton style Gotham City, you know, where it feels very gothic and dark and uh, Sean Alexander's art suits that very, very well. Uh, all right. So finally, we're at the end here. Batman, Catwoman, the Gotham War, Scorched Earth, number one, written by Tinney Howard and Chip Zdarsky. Pencils are by Mike Hawthorne with Nicholas Semegia. Inks by Mark Morales, Wade Von Grabinger and Semegia Inks himself. We have colors by Arif Prianto and letters by Clayton Cowles. I don't really have much to say about this. Um, you know, I've talked about it before when we got the whole switch midstream, everything I feel that was sort of interesting about the Gotham Wars, kind of these philosophical questions that are, are such difficult questions. They don't even really have answers in terms of who's right, Batman or, or Catwoman uh, with violent crime being down. And what's really the answer? Is it is one right? Is the other right? Are they both right? Are they both wrong? I, I'm of the opinion they're both wrong. But instead of having like a natural resolution to that, instead we get Vandal Savage thrown in. We get this idea of his immortality wearing off, Bruce Wayne always having had the um, the biggest meteor fragment, and that's why the other people that had meteor fragments showed up there. They're all stolen. He pulls this meteor down from the sky. It lands in Gotham, turns the the – a lot of the underground underneath Gotham into a Lazarus pit, apparently. Like, in Zero Year, wasn't there something beneath Gotham, it, some element or whatever, that get, like gave the Joker eternal life? <laughs> it's like, how much stuff is actually under Gotham? We've got Neo-Gothic where we're going under Gotham, under Gotham, under Gotham. Like, uh, I don't yeah. know anymore. It's like <laughs> Gotham City, it, 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 it's got its history. <laughs> it's gotten so convoluted. Everybody wanted to tell their stories and sort of change the geography and makeup of the city, um, you know, to suit their own story. So at, at the end of the day, this just felt sort of like we started to get one story. And before we got the resolution to that story, it morphed into something else, which wasn't particularly satisfying. And then uh, even if you want to say, okay, this was a cool um, Vandal Savage story, even that at the end, like the meteor, you know, crashes, uh, we get these hints that Jason Todd is going to kill himself and it, uh, sacrifice himself to stop the meteor. And we're all sad because of the, what Bruce has done to him recently. And then he even survives that. It's no big deal. He just parachutes out of the bat plane. Uh, but, but a big meteor piece of the meteor still hits, like I said, turns the ground or whatever it is, chemicals underneath Gotham city into a Lazarus pit. And then, uh, Vandal Savage is, you know, trapped under the meteor. It's not the same type of energy that gave him his immortality. So what's it going to do to him long-term if he even survives it? Well, of course, he's going to survive it because it's comics. But it just felt like a truncated ending. It wasn't particularly satisfying. It wasn't one of those things where you could predict what was going to happen. Uh, it just felt a little ex deus machina ending um, that, again, like most of this was kind of paint-by-the-numbers action where there's some big – catastrophic event in Gotham city, in this case, the meteor hitting um, as well as all of the uh, rogues getting access to Batman's weapons, which is a cool idea, but not enough room in this issue to really explore that. And the rest of the bat family, you know, take them all out. So again, that's where the action comes in, but it just felt it could have been anything. It could have been um, night's end. It could have been uh, no man's land. It could have been, 
Joker war. It's all just feeling redundant at this point. Um, and then at the end, like I mentioned earlier, Batman just being tired, you know, talking to Dick and like, yeah, I, I need to go away. Uh, it's okay. Um, I, I, I want Jason to have happiness. I've doomed you all for a life of sadness and you can never be happy because it's war that I recruited you all to. And just it's very melancholy, very depressing in a, in a lot of ways. So there's something called mind bomb coming up. There's um, hints of the three jokers returning the idea that there's three different jokers. So how this is all going to play out. Uh, there's also rumors that Bruce Wayne's identity is going to be revealed as Batman. Again, it's, it's, it's all been done before. This doesn't feel like anything original. Um, and I didn't, not, not to the extent that I felt when I read Supergirl, I was like, God, what was the point of this? Although this did take a lot longer. I didn't feel like to that extent, but this isn't, I'll just say it this way. It wasn't, well, it didn't feel like a complete waste of time. It wasn't memorable. This is not something I'm going to think back on. Um, certainly not with any sort of fond memories. Um, it's entirely possible if, there are some lasting ramifications for this in terms of Batman going off on his own. Cause you know, he mentions, I'm glad you unplugged me from the, the bat box. You know, I'm not uh, wired in anymore and go uh, be on my own. Is this a way to bring Batman back to his roots? You know, I've talked all the time about how uh, when you have so many characters that are derivative of some main character, it makes them less special. And we have so many different members of the bat family to the Superman family to some extent as well. Um, but is this sort of a reset button that I might think back to Gotham World? Oh, that, that was the beginning of the reset or, or what have you. But ultimately, this was no different than any other DC event recently where it just it didn't land in a great fashion. It feels redundant. It feels derivative. It feels a little boring, to be honest with you. Uh, I thought the Mike Hawthorne art was fine. Uh, the Semedja art at the end, um, kind of the epilogue, if you will, was fine. Uh, but yeah, nothing that really stands out at me where I go, well, you know, uh, it might not have been the best story in the world, but I can really hang my hat on this thing. There, there, there was no hook. There's nothing that, uh, no lasting fond memory of this event for me. So I don't know. What, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely disappointed. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I think overall, I mean, I, I obviously you're underwhelmed by it to, to be diplomatic for my, the way I would interpret your review, I and I, I'm I'm a little bit more harsh. I I don't like the art. I I think Mike Hawthorne's art. I, Mike Hawthorne's art. I I don't think he's good enough for the big two. I, straight up. And his Wonder Woman evolution was how he got any work after that is beyond me. And this just sort of solidifies that for me. I don't. It's 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 serviceable, but it it's not good enough in my view. Uh, some pages aren't bad, but you know. Uh, even a clock, you know, even a, a clock with the wrong time gets it right was once or twice a day. Uh, it just disappointing. Story wise, this is boring. Uh, this is, I, 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 I don't agree. I didn't agree with the characterization at the beginning, which laid the foundation for our, uh, you know, our uh, comic book disagreement and debate over uh, where at least we had some excitement and something to, you know, debate and quantum, you know, yak about, rant about. Um, this just seems so forced. You know, Batman now going to be on his own and a loner, and he tells Dick, "Oh my God, you, you and you and Barbara Garden, you, you, you and Babs, you're the true parents of the Bat family." And yeah, well, everyone kind of knew that. Everything feels forced to me. Even his, even this notion that somehow, you know, Selina tells Catwoman tells Batman he's got to answer for what he did to Jason Todd. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Oh, you mean Jason called the killer, the one that he's let loose? Uh, I don't think he does. Uh, uh, now, people can disagree with me. You can disagree with me on that. Well, that's a debate. Well, let's explore that. Let's explore the right type of punishment for a killer like Jason Todd. Maybe he's not a killer. Okay, well, what does Jason, you know, Jason Todd think? Jason Todd, you know, uh, you know, flies the batjet up to the, up to the, the, the meteor that's going to grant immortality to uh, Vandal Savage. Uh, he, he, he's doing that and he tells Batman, I'm going to do this so you, so to prove that you don't, you know, you don't really know me, you know, that you, you're wrong about me, Batman. Here I am flying this bat, bat plane into this, sacrificing myself. Totally missing the point. Batman injected him with that serum because he's a killer and he doesn't, he wants him to be incapacitated everyone, every time he has an adrenaline rush, so he doesn't kill. Yes, it is extreme. I, I, I grant you that. But this notion that somehow that 
it, it's necessary. You know, w- w- we get it. Batman is is possessed by Batman has the Batman of Zer and Ah. But as Batman Bruce Wayne himself says here that this isn't Zer talking. Now there's an implication that it is really Zer talking, and that that. that uh, but my point is, is that there is a legitimate point to be made here that, you know, I, I still say that at least a few members of the Bat family ought to have said that, you know what, Bruce, what you did was wrong, Bruce. But, you know, Jason Todd, you are a killer. Barbara Gordon could say, remember, remember, Jason, what you did to what, one of the Jokers and three Jokers. And remember that you, you haven't gone to you haven't gone to jail for that. You blew a guy's head off. Uh, anyways, this is the stuff. This is, and you've talked about, you said it yourself, Chase, there, there's potential for debate here and argument and, and ranting about back and forth and, uh, and we're, we're just j- jumping over all these issues. Uh, and it's so many missed opportunities. I like, there were some nice scenes here with Selena saving uh, Marquis, uh, Scandal Savage. She calls her Marquis instead of letting her die. Uh, and then ultimately supposedly dying herself. But of course, we, we know Catwoman is not really dead. So none of the, none of this real feels that, that this is a particularly big deal. Um, this, this um, I don't know, there is a hint at the end that, you know, a, a random thief is robbing Wayne Manor. Uh, and d- suddenly discovers that that Bruce Wayne is Batman because he stumbles into the cave. Like, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that all the security was completely shut off. I mean, you know, Vandal Savage buys Wayne Manor. The security's gone. Like, it just, it just, this whole thing just seems like it was a one giant cluster F U C K, and that you know when Nightwing shut off the the network that Batman didn't have access to the network. Suddenly, all the security of the Batcave, and which is part of the Heroes Network connected to the Justice League, the Fortress of Solitude. What about that? Now, again, I know I'm throwing a lot of this is all continuity stuff I'm throwing out there, but not a lot of thought uh, went into this storyline, quite frankly, in my view, by Teeny Howard or Trip on on the on the finer details that would have made this more interesting. And so overall. Just a massive disappointment for me. And I'm not really looking forward as to what's going to come next because I, I don't like what brought us here. So, uh, you know, hopefully I'll happily put my foot in my mouth if I'm wrong when this uh, when this uh, series continues. But for this was very meh to me. Yeah, I do want to make it clear uh, that that Batman Three Jokers, where he blows one of the Jokers head off, that's not necessarily in continuity. Not that he hasn't killed other people. <laughs> well, but oh, I, I want to be – I want to be – I want to be fair. DC has not come out and said it one way or the other. Well, well, well wait a minute. Remember- Batman says in this issue, Batman says in this issue to the Riddler, I already know there's three Jokers, Riddler. Yes. He says that. that. Yes, he says that. That doesn't mean that particular story is in wow. continuity. We had the Jeff Johns Justice League where at the end, Batman sits on the Met- Metron, uh, sits on uh, the Mobius chair where Metron sat. And he goes, oh, there's three Jokers. Um, so the idea of three jokers, yes, that's in continuity, but it, the jury's still out on whether or not this is DC trying to have its cake and eat it too. This is DC problems with Jeff John's stories taking yeah. forever to come out, problems he's had with Doomsday. Even if you recall when that story was coming out or when it finally came out, Jason Fabok and Jeff Johns both themselves said it's in continuity the way Killer Killing Joke is in continuity, right? Like Killing <laughs> Joke wasn't in continuity at first, <laughs> For the long and it was time. so popular. Eventually, people brought it into continuity, whatever. And so they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, saying it counts if you want it to count, doesn't count if you don't want it well, to count. But they've never come out. DC themselves has never come out and said it's in continuity. It's not in continuity. My take is that it's not, mostly because it's horrible wow. and doesn't need to. I mean, the art's fantastic, but the story just doesn't make any sense, whatever. Um, so so yours, whatever. That, that would render these three jokers that he's referencing here to be a totally different set of three jokers then. Not, not necessarily, not because it, it doesn't mean the concept of three jokers is different. It could just be that those events in that particular comic didn't happen the way that they happen. In, in, well, in, fair enough. You know. We shall so, see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So again, I just I want to play devil's advocate because there's somebody else. He never actually killed anybody. He's I mean, they never come out and just say or show him blowing somebody away in cold-blooded murder because he's an anti-hero. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously there there are problems. But then I, you know, I disagree with what Bruce did and giving him the spear toxin. Whenever his adrenaline goes off, the guy gets scared. At least he's able to overcome it. Uh, I'll give him that. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have the return of Superman 30th anniversary special. Uh, it's all one story, but different parts of the story by done by different um, creators. Creators that worked on the um, Return of Superman event back in the day, 
So we start off with Legacy, script by Dan Jurgens, art by Travis Moore, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Then we move to Speed, uh, where Louise Simonson handles the script, John Bogdanov on pencils and inks, Glenn Whitmore on colors, and Richard Sarkin on letters. Then Jerry Ord Ordway handles the next part. Script and art, he had me thinking he was Superman, with colors by Glenn Whitmore and letters by Richard Sarkin. Then we move on to the Metropolis Kid, kind of the Superboy section uh, by writer Carl Kiesel with Tom Grummet on pencils, Doug Hazelwood on inks, Glenn Whitmore on colors, and Richard Starkey on letters. Then we finish up with Betrayal, back to Jurgens on script. He also does the breakdowns with Brett Breeding handling the finishes, Elizabeth Brightweiser on those colors, and Richard Starkey on the letters there. Uh, there's also some pinups by a lot of those same creators uh, that were promotional art back in the day um, for this return to Superman. So I enjoyed this. It was a fun trip down memory lane. I, I don't know how well it works as an overall cohesive story. Um, it feels a little choppy, but it's to be expected when you have different artists and different creators. Um, I mean, it comes together pretty well uh, for the most part, a lot of flashback. You know, these are creators that work together for a long time in the triangle of the super, uh, Superman, so you expect it to work really well. But ultimately, if you were a fan, if you're reading Superman back then, this you're going to like this. It's going to have nostalgia for you. It's going to be fun. Um, and if you didn't, then it might feel a little more choppy, a little less so cohesive, and you, you know, you're not going to have the context, and some of it uh, may be lost on you, and you're not going to be like, oh, Maggie Sawyer. Oh, uh uh, God, what's his name? Kilgrave. Um, yeah, it, it just, it might not land for you. Uh, but for me, you know, I love that era of, of Superman. Um, it was a lot of fun, especially get, getting to see Grummet do super draw Superboy again. Uh, I love the little homage to Mike Carlin, who was the editor. He recently retired long, long, long time editor, group editor at DC comics. He was one that was in charge of the Superman books during that triangle era. Um, and you want to talk about a tough job, right? Like being the bat editor or Superman editor or what have you and having to wrangle a bunch of creative teams. But then imagine that you're wrangling the creative teams to tell one cohesive story each week, right? Cause that's what the triangle era was. It had a triangle on the cover that said, you know, this is 1996, you know, part one, this is 1996 part two. So you knew which order to read all the different Superman books in. You had one Superman book coming out each week. You had Superman, you had action comics, you had adventures uh, of Superman and you had the man of seal. And then for those uh, weeks that you had an extra, those months you had an extra, you know, those four extra, you had a quarterly book called Superman man of tomorrow that filled in. So every week you had a Superman story that continued from the previous um week's book, which was a different title with a different creative team. And Mike Carlin made it all work. So I love the homage to him in here uh, with Perry White and what have you. So for me, this work, this was a heck of a lot of fun. Wonderful to see these artists that I haven't seen draw Superman in a long time. And it does uh, do a good job of kind of summing up and celebrating who Superman is and reminding us why it was such a big deal when he was gone and such a big deal when he came back. So for me, yeah, this was a big win, even though it, as I said, wasn't the most cohesive story when you put it all together. I didn't care. It, I didn't mind that it felt a little corny and a little forced uh, because I loved seeing these creators work together again. I loved being reminded of this time period. Um, and it's funny because at the time it felt a little convoluted and it felt like it lasted so much longer than it really did. I mean, Superman was only gone for like not even a year. Um but comics have gotten so much more complicated and like the way we consume media and everything has become so much more complicated. Now you look back on this time period and all of a sudden, uh, even though it was the triangle era and you had to read it something every week or whatever, um, when things weren't spoiled by the internet or whatever, it really was a more innocent time at, at the time we weren't aware of it at the time it felt complicated and, and big and bombastic. And now you look back and it little, there's a little bit of, Oh, how quaint that you told this one big story over you know, a weekly release schedule, basically in, in different books. Yes. Yeah. Just a different time. Um, I won't go so far as to say a better time. I mean, obviously there's positives and negatives. Uh, you can't always look back with rose colored glasses. Um, I mean, the fact that you can research characters and learn about other characters. Uh, I mean, if you weren't around for the return of Superman, you want to know who Thaddeus Kilgrave is. You can just get on Google, Google it up, read all about them and learn everything. Like back in the day, if you didn't know who somebody was or you missed that issue, it was like 
you had to go try to track it down, find out what issue it was. There was a lot more editor notes back there to kind of help you out. But yeah, you had to go to a comic shop, find the back issue, read it, try to make sense of it. Uh, a lot easier now. You can go on YouTube. You can Google it yourself, Wikipedia, what have you. Um, so a little bit different. But man, this was a lot of fun, a lot of uh, good memories. So uh, what do you think about it, Rocky? Yeah, well, you know, uh, just to state the obvious, all of the, the Return of Superman introduced us to four new characters, all claiming or, or not all claim, not all of them claimed, but all of them purportedly to replace the Man of Steel. And, you know, Cyborg Superman, the, the Eradicator, Steel, uh, Connor Kent. And these are iconic characters that have become iconic since 1992. And, you know, this is, I, I like what DC does here. I like, I like what all the, all the collaborators did in this collection here because they, they're sort of, 1992 is really, it's more than a few generations away. It's, it's at least a, a, a minimum one generation behind us. And a, it was a very different world back then with different technology. There's no, I mean, just different. It was a different world. It was pre-iPhone, for God's sakes, pre-smartphone. And so in, in a way, we need a story like this that bridges the gap where it's sort of updated a little bit. You know, where Lois Lane, you know, is Lois Lane is, is talking with fellow reporters and they're reflecting back on it. And they're 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 giving a more modern recollection of, of that event, which I find very interesting and needed for a new generation of readers who never experienced reading the return of Superman and, or experienced the death of Superman like we did in real time way back when. And so I thought I thought it was reasonably well done. Uh, there's going to be hiccups, and you mentioned them. Some of the transitions are a little wonky, and how it sort of it squeezes in. It's all centered around a plot where uh, uh, Cyborg Superman ultimately is wants to attack Star Labs, and ultimately ends up getting attacked and sent to the Phantom Zone by the Eradicator, who ironically is already in the Phantom Zone and projecting himself into the world. So there's there's there, that's the central conceit of the main story, and as they're reflecting back, that tells all the stories of, of all the various uh, Superman, Connor Kent, uh, uh, was Superboy, uh, Eradicator, Cyborg, Superman, Steel, and you know it it does work, it does work, and it you know it's kind of an interesting idea for uh, moving forward for other collections. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that more that this idea isn't done more often by Marvel and DC, where you take past collections and why not have the character reflecting back on a classic story? Why not have it be a story within a story? That why not have the the collection itself, like in this case, the the, the collections of the stories themselves, be be the be the flashback to. Uh, a larger narrative, which is what this does here. And I think it, I think it worked and I think it'll, it's a, I think it works better than maybe just selling the old trade paperback, uh, which, uh, you know, and it's a good way to maybe make some extra money and, and modernize it for a a new, new generation of readers. So yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. A lot of fun. Uh, all right. Up next we have Aquaman and the last kingdom special number one written by Tim Seeley art by Miguel Mondoka. Colors by Andrew Dollhouse, uh, letters by Wes Abbott. I kind of, yeah, this is like the third book this week where I've kind of, almost like, what's the point? This, so this is a prelude, uh, supposedly, to the Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom um, movie that's going to be out in December. So I guess you read this and it kind of leads into that film. But it didn't, for me at least, provide anything that I didn't already know. Um, it so a little bit, what's the point? I mean, a little more context into Black Manta, I guess. Um, kind of an origin of the villain we're going to see in that movie and what have you. So I feel like this is definitely for people that are fans of more of the DC cinematic universe. I mean, Aquaman here clearly is Jason Momoa and the way that he's drawn and what have you. I mean, technically the comic is fine. Um, and artistically, there's some really great pages. Um the villains look cool, you know, great line work and what have you. Um, but in terms of story, it was just kind of like, this didn't really, this didn't feel new or fresh or exciting. Um, it just felt like kind of a paint by numbers Aquaman story, um, which, you know, in terms of kind of the light continuity that the movies have, I guess is sort of be, to be expected um, and goes to show why I, I just, I would rather read comics and go, look at comic book movies that you, I go see comic book movies for the spectacle and to see characters that I love larger than life up on the big screen. 
I never expect a you know great story that's going to wow me. It just doesn't work like that, right? It's just harder to do a big, complicated story on the big screen, especially when you're trying to explain it to kind of the lowest common denominator, people that aren't familiar with the relationships and the history and um, the context of a, a lot of these characters. So yeah, this definitely wasn't for me. It wasn't bad by any stretch, um, but you know, for me, it's it's not something that is really going to be memorable. A little more like, what's the point? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it works better for you, Rocky. What would you think? It, it did work better for me. And uh, I think that, uh, let's be blunt, everyone is a little bit down on probably the upcoming Aquaman movie. And, and it's for a whole slew of unfair reasons. The first Aquaman movie made a billion dollars. It was the only DC movie to make a billion dollars. And we got to give it some credit. And to be honest, I reading this comic, uh, I thought this comic was well put together. And I didn't think, to use your words, I, I didn't think this was by the numbers. I actually thought this was kind of fun. I, I, I thought it was, uh, I, I love we, we're introduced to this, uh, this uh, two, uh, we're introduced to this terrorist group led by this woman by the name, this red, short redheaded woman called Great. She calls herself the Great White. And they're, they basically, they speak out, they, they're sort of against the Justice League and uh, they're a terrorist group. Uh, and they feel that mankind has lost its place in nature and that they should they should stop worshipping the Justice League. And there's basically a meta bomb that explodes based on a, a, a car, a apocalyptic uh, energies, which uh, reprogram DNA. And this this bomb explodes after Arthur Curry, Aquaman, uh, acquires it and dumps it into Hudson, the Hudson uh, River. Unfortunately, there's two villains under the Hudson River that are up to no good, and uh, this there's Skyla and Charybdis, and this Scylla character dies, and the Charybdis is converted. Uh, this bomb explodes, and it converts him into this character called the Nihilist, and this Nihilist ha- acquires half of the powers of Aquaman and uses half of those powers to change the Great White into, and her terror and her other terrorists into sort of like shark looking characters <laughs> and so uh and uh, in the midst of all this you know arthur curry is getting married and uh mira is pregnant <gasps> spoiler alert i mean i think that's i i mean this is uh, this probably is suggested or implied by the trailers but in any event uh you know of course nihilist uh they want to interrupt. They want to interrupt the wedding, uh, the, but they're unsuccessful, and the nihilist ends up escaping. And then we also get a backstory of uh, Black Manta, and this is the origin story—the origin story of Black Manta's new crew, because he acquires a pirate crew, and Black Manta manages to acquire his uh, pirate crew. Uh, well, I mean that's the entire point of this story. There, you know, he basically. Uh, uh, he could, uh, there's a number of real, real nice double page spreads. I don't, I don't know if it's the same artist or not in the backup, but, uh, it, the, the, this new look for, for Black Manta, it's, it's kind of cool. I, I actually don't mind it. I actually think it looks, it's, it look, it looks kind of cool. And I'm, I'm assuming that Black Manta is going to look this, this way. He's going to look more than just having that, that big helmet with the great big eyes that we see. He's got, uh, there's a different look of Black Manta here in this. And I think it actually works kind of well, but he managed to acquire his own new pirate crew. And I think that for us comic book readers, I'm, I'm actually curious having read this and, uh, and I want to read it a second time before I see the Aquaman movie because I think this is one of those things where we can might get potentially rewarded because we'll know a little bit more in reading this in terms of what the origins and what happened prior to the Aquaman movie because I have a feeling that the movie is not going to spoon feed. The movie is just going to sort of just going to show these villains and jump right to it and they're just going to reference their origin as opposed to here we get it more flushed out. So I thought it was actually well done. I thought it was well done because... I um I thought this was better than than some of the backup or the stories we got leading into the uh, uh, Black Adam movie. Quite frankly, I thought this was more interesting to me. I thought so. I thought I, I enjoyed this, and I was m- much to my surprise. I wasn't expecting to enjoy it, but I did. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, again, I just thought it was kind of okay. Uh, I the. Yeah, I was going to give the credits for the backup. So the, the Black Mana backup written by Joey Esposito. Ray Anthony Height does the art. Uh, Aaron Angelini on colors and Josh Reed on letters. And then the, um, the Ocean Master backups written by Ethan Sachs, Scott Eaton on pencils, Norm Ratman on inks, Tony Avina on colors, and Carlos Emanuel on letters. That one was really 
the kind of the weakest. Um, I guess kind of, again, we're going to jump right in the middle of the story when it comes to the next Aquaman movie. You're right. And if you've seen trailers or seen any previews or whatever, you see the ocean masters actually fighting alongside Aquaman. And if you're wondering why that is, well, this is, this explains it, except not really. Uh, ocean master <laughs> has, has a, he's trying to escape where he's been in prison since the events of the first Aquaman movie. He tries to escape. He, his escape is foiled. And then he has a change of heart and says, Oh, maybe I deserve to be here after all. It doesn't really make sense, um, but it's fine. It, it's this is all fine. It's not. It's technically well put together. I think the art's good. The colors are good. Um, it's just yeah. It's a little more of a simplistic take on on Aquaman overall. So, uh, all right. When it comes to collected editions this week, we've got Super Sons Omnibus Super Duper Edition hardcover, which basically collects all the Super Sons stuff from Peter J. Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. Collect Super Sons 1 through 16, Super Sons Annual 1, Super Sons Dino Mutt Special Number 1, Adventures of Super Sons 1 through 12, Challenge of the Super Sons 1 through 7, Superman, uh, the 2016 uh, volume 10 and 11, and 37 to 38, which are Super Sons stories, uh, Teen Titans, the 2016 volume, number 15, and a story from the Robin 80th Anniversary 100-page Super spectacular that stars the Super Sons. So it's 1,056 pages. It's 125 bucks. If you're a fan of the Super Sons, definitely should check it out. Uh, my favorite Jorge Jimenez art ever is on uh, on the Super Sons. We also have a new version of Gotham by Gaslight, which was the first Gotham uh, or DC Elseworlds title ever, by, written by the uh, late great Brian Augustine, art by Mike Mignola, the uh, legendary Mike Mignola. Uh, we also have Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods hardcover, which is kind of hard for us to recommend. Uh, it's by G. Willow Wilson, Becky Cloonan, and Michael W. Conrad, along with Josie Campbell. Um, it mashed up a lot of the stuff that we had seen in the Wonder Woman uh, title bleeding into this, as well as things that happened in Lazarus Planet and then bring in some Shazam elements. It was okay. Uh, I think they kind of did the best they could. I, I think Rocky likes to say lip sync on a pig. It's probably accurate. Uh, and then finally, we have JLA, JSA, Virtue and Vice, which is uh, a 96-page uh, one-shot that they're reprinting. Um, it's uh, written by David S. Goyer and Jeff Johns. Carlos Pacheco, the late, speaking of late great, uh, handles the pencils, Jesus Moreno on inks. Um, it's, yeah, absolutely fantastic story from uh, – Back in the day, I think I want to say it came out in '98, but it might have been more recent than that. But uh, anyway, those are the collections that are out this week. Rocky, uh, what do you have for your book of the week? Oh man, uh, this was definitely uh, an, an easier pick for me this week. Uh, I thought it was uh, it was a no brainer for me. It was Spirit World uh, number six. Uh, it was it was just it ended on a high note for me. I thought Alyssa Wong. I thought that they did a very good job. And it, uh, I'm interested in the character now, and I understood more of the mythology, and I, I understood more of the themes and what was uh, what they were trying to to portray, and it had really good art, and I was quite happy with it. So, uh, yeah, I would have to go. Pick of the week would be definitely the the, the spirit. Yeah, good pick, good pick. Sure. I considered it. Ultimately, nostalgia wins out for me. I got to go with Superman Returns 30th Anniversary Special. Just yeah, I'll, just seeing, getting stories in the in those tones, right? Uh, each writer has sort of a tone they write in. Getting those stories and those tones from uh, Jerry Ordway and Dan Jurgens and Louis Simonson, along with the art from the art artists they were teamed up with back then, Bob Donov, Ordway illustrating himself, Tom Grummet with Carl Kiesel. Uh, which again, you know, talk about tone. Carl Kiesel just loved the way he writes Superboy. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a walk down, trip down memory lane, man. It was uh, it was just a lot of fun. Just I loved it. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did because recently they did the for the Death of Superman they did an anniversary and there was a Doomsday special or whatever and that that was just kind of shrug for me. It was not you know it, it just I, it wasn't as enjoyable, but this was because it really celebrated the the past. I loved the the framing aspect of it with um, Perry's journal and whatnot. So yeah, that's uh, that's my okay. pick. 
So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget, if you're listening to the audio-only version, be sure you head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel so you don't miss any of the content uh, on his Comic Boom YouTube channel. Just do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Subscribe, uh, ring the notification bell so you're notified when new content comes out. Leave some comments below. Let us know what you thought of the books this week. Uh, maybe you enjoyed some of them more than us, less than us. Give us your thoughts. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to be sure you're hearing all the other interviews and content that we do on the Comic Source Audio only, just go to whatever platform you get your uh, podcast from, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So we appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.